News on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Wednesday the 27th of April. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. Russian energy firm Gazprom has told Poland and Bulgaria it will stop sending gas to the two countries from today. The move comes after Russia said unfriendly countries must start paying for gas in rubles or it would cut supplies. The U.S. Senate has confirmed Lael Brainard to serve as vice chair of the Federal Reserve, a position that's been unoccupied since mid-January. Ms. Brainard, who has served as a governor on the Fed's board since 2014, was confirmed in a 52-43 to 43 vote in the Senate. Chief Executive Carrie Lam said on Tuesday that Hong Kong will stick to its plan to further relax social distancing measures in the second half of May. But she stressed that the government will not ease travel restrictions any further for now, despite calls from business leaders to allow home quarantine for arrivals and for the flight suspension mechanism to be scrapped completely. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Iris Pang at ING Wholesale Banking, Sam Favre from Mandarin Capital and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US tech stocks dropped sharply on Tuesday ahead of key earnings reports from Microsoft and Alphabet. The Nasdaq Composite tumbled 4% to 12,491, the lowest level since December 2020. It was the biggest single-day decline since September 2020. The S&P 500 dropped 2.8%, ending the day at 4,175. The Dow lost 809 points to close at 33,240. Shares of General Electric fell over 10% after Chief Executive Larry Culp said the lockdowns stemming from China's zero COVID strategy have worsened General Electric's supply chain challenges. Shares in Tesla fell by over 12%, wiping more than $125 billion off its valuation after Twitter accepted a bid from Elon Musk, Chief Executive of the electric car maker. After the bell, Microsoft reported revenue and earnings in the first quarter of this year above Wall Street expectations. Revenue grew by 18% to $49.4 billion. Earnings were $2.22 per share versus $2.19 expected by analysts. Shares of Microsoft rose 4.5% in after-hours trading. But Alphabet reported weak earnings and revenue. YouTube advertising revenue was weaker than expected at $6.8 billion compared to $7.5 billion expected. Shares of Alphabet fell 3% after hours. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index dropped 0.9%, but London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.1%. The People's Bank of China said recent gyrations in the financial markets were driven by expectations and sentiment, not fundamentals. In a statement Tuesday, it added that it will ramp up prudent monetary policies to support small and medium-sized businesses in industries and companies battered by the pandemic. That statement initially helped Chinese uh, helped stabilize Chinese markets on Tuesday following a steep sell-off the previous day. The Shanghai Composite 
close in Tuesday's morning session, but then lost its gains in the afternoon session to close 1.4% lower at 2,886. In Hong Kong, shares rebounded from a six-week low. The Hang Seng closed 65 points or a third of a percent higher at 19,935, partly recovering from a 3.7% drop the previous day. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose 2.9%. HSBC reported a 27% fall in quarterly profit on Tuesday, hit by slowing growth in Hong Kong and decreased profits because of the war in Ukraine. The bank posted a pre-tax profit of 4.2 billion US dollars for the first quarter of 2022 versus 5.78 billion dollars a year earlier. The results were better than the 3.72 billion estimated by analysts. The bank warned. The bank warned that further stock buybacks in 2022 were unlikely at this stage. Shares of HSBC closed over 4% lower in Hong Kong. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 3% higher at $106.10 a barrel. Gold is up a third of a percent at $1,906 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell nine basis points to 2.73%, and the US dollar index climbed 0.6% to its highest level since May 2020. The euro this morning is at $1.06. The Japanese yen is at 127 and a quarter versus the dollar. Sterling fell 1.3% to $1.25 and three quarter cents, and is at nine Hong Kong dollars and 87 cents. Mainland authorities took steps to stem the decline in the yuan. The PBOC cuts the reserve requirement ratio for financial institutions' holdings at foreign currency deposits by one percentage point to eight percent. Both offshore yuan and onshore yuan rose following the move. The offshore yuan bounced 200 pips back to 6.55. However, this morning it slipped back to 6.59 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin is down 4.5% at $38,100. And around Asian stocks this morning, not surprisingly, everything in the red. The ASX 200 is off 0.6%. Shares in Japan down 2.1%. That's the Nikkei 225 there. In South Korea, the Cosby is down 1.9%. And futures markets pointing to a 360-point loss for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. nine and a half. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us in our Queensway studio, Iris Pang, who is Greater China Chief Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Morning, Iris. Morning, Peter. And also with us is Sam Favre, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Sam. Morning, Peter. And welcome back to our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, over in Washington, D.C. Welcome, uh, Barry. Yes, sir. Good morning, Peter. Now, the Asian region faces a stagflationary outlook. A senior international monetary fund official warned on Tuesday, citing the Ukraine war, a spike in commodity costs and a slowdown in China as creating significant uncertainty. And the World Bank has warned that the war in Ukraine is set to cause the largest commodity shock since the 1970s. In a new forecast, it said disruption caused by the conflict will contribute to huge price rises for goods ranging from natural gas to wheat and cotton. Iris, do you want to um, kick off 
there. there. Martin Wolf wrote a good article in the Financial Times yesterday mm -hmm. saying wars are, are big economic shocks. The Vietnam War destabilised US public finances. The Korean War triggered huge increases in the prices of vital commodities. What do you think are going to be the biggest economic consequences of the current war in Ukraine? I think the biggest concern, as you said, is the hard commodities and uh, soft commodities prices for Western side of the world or the non-allies of Russia. Um, they will suffer from high, very high commodity prices. But for um, allies of Russia, they may be actually um, buying Russian oil and LNG at a discounted prices because the the Russian uh, oil and LNG supply will be bigger than than uh, before because the the demand side is um, is stopped uh, for mm. for the West. It's a bit risky though, isn't it, for countries to go down that route? They may face U.S. sanctions as a result. They may, but um, our in-house view is that a secondary sanction is uh, quite unlikely because it will create many chaos in the world. Mm. So the U.S. may refrain from doing so. Do you agree with the IMF that stagflation is coming? For some economies, yes, um, especially for European economies, stagflation is in the cards. Though we still see that some, some from time to time, some data signals strong growth. But from time to time, the data also is very mixed. So it is still early uh, in, in terms of the war. I don't think the war is going to end anytime soon. So this effect will continue and stagflation is uh, very likely after that. Sam, what do you think? This is all coming at a bad time, of course, because uh, well, there's no good time for a war, but we've just started to recover from the other uh, pandemic as well and all the disruption that caused. I think you have two factors in terms of stagflation. You obviously have the Ukrainian war, but you still have the COVID impact, especially out mm. of China, which is disrupting the supply chains. I think also most importantly, which is not priced in, is whenever you have a conflict like this, it's not necessarily the first shot which is going to be the issue, but the second uh, consequences is which is going to be a rebalancing of uh, you know the economies under trade, because it's pretty obvious that uh, the energy from especially in Europe they are going to start looking supplies everywhere else so I think one of the big danger is you're going to start seeing blocks uh, re-emerging within the emerging economy so after 20-25 years of globalization which was one of the key factors to keep inflation in place now you're going to start seeing some kind of de-globalization to some extent or some regionalization and that is clearly uh, inflationary in nature because you're so, in, instead of putting you know maximization of profit in place. Now you're working on a constraint and prices are inherently have to go up. So long term, it's definitely very inflationary. Barry, what, what are your thoughts? We're seeing definitely a lack of cooperation, aren't we, at the moment between uh, countries. We saw that in the, uh, the walkouts by Western ministers and central bankers from last week's G20 meeting. Yes, we did. Yeah, I think it's, uh, if there's one word I would add to what Iris and Sam have said, it would be fear. I think there's a lot of fear, particularly in Europe, where I've been for the last few weeks. The, uh, 
the absolute threat of a slowdown combined with very high price rises, that's stagflation all right. And I think that the Europeans, as Ira said, are going to experience that first. Uh, there's a real possibility that uh, this economy is going to grind to a halt. You've had in gas prices a 500% increase in the course of 2021 and the first couple months of 2022. And now we see that the Russians, as you mentioned in the news, are going to uh, cut off supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. You know, this, mm. is, this is fearful. So, yeah, I think uh, this is a very dangerous time. And I think the decline in equity markets, both in North America and Asia, and in particularly Europe, are giving us a signal that fear is dominant. And does this mean we've got, we've got to prepare for sharply higher interest rates to try and uh, to counter this inflationary shock? Well, I think that is really the conundrum, because here you've got the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and even talking about a 50 basis point increase or 75 basis point increase at the very time that the economy is slowing. And the Europeans, I think, are, uh, you know, sort of dawdling and just waiting. So, yeah, I think uh, interest rates are the big unknown. They could reverse policy in the sense of, of stopping the rate increases, but um, we'll have to wait and see. But we'll get some news from the Fed just in 10 days' time. Iris and Sam, what, what's going to be the impact on Hong Kong of that? Uh, markets are now predicting U.S. interest rates are going to get to 3%, maybe beyond that by the, uh, by the end of the year. For Hong Kong, um, the HKMA has to raise the base rate from the linked exchange rate system. But banks may not follow. Uh, it depends on the competition situation uh, among banks in Hong Kong. So um, we, we don't need to worry too much that um, the, the Hong Kong's, uh, the banks located in Hong Kong will raise as much as the Fed. Um, I expect that they, they are just uh, going to stay put for, for banks in Hong Kong, they are going to stay put for the, for the moment because the economic growth outlook is not that good. Well, I don't necessarily agree on this. I think obviously they need to, um, they, the HKMA role is to make sure the markets are calm, but we're clearly seeing big outflow from the region just on the interest rate differential. So at some point, everybody has to react. And one of the big uh, region, which is way behind the curve, is Europe facing, you know, the biggest inflation. Now we have a two big issues on this, is they're way behind the curve. So inflation expectations still going up, but we also have this, this wall of debt, which has been issued for the last five years. And I think that's where the governments are really lacking any kind of tools because monetary policy is not on the table. Fiscal stimulus is really becoming a non-situation. So across the globe, I think most of the governments and the central banks are lacking any means to actually fight, this, fight at this. Mm. So they will have to pick up one problem first, which I think will have to be inflation, and then deal with the um, with the growth after that. I mean, it's a point, isn't it, that's not really uh, focused on that much at the moment. But with interest rates rising uh, sharply in the in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, uh, the U.S. a lot of other countries have got a mountain of debts they've accumulated since the global financial crisis, which is going to cost a lot more to service going to put a lot more pressure on countries' finances, particularly uh, emerging market countries' finances. Um, is that something that you think that people should be more concerned about? Yes, I think it is. And I think uh, you and Sam have uh, 
have been on the right course to highlight it because, uh, yes, interest rates have been negative and the, the rate has been so low that it was easy to service debt. So now you've got a rising interest rate and most of these, these uh, third world debts are in U.S. denominated securities. That is uh, putting pressure on. Now, so far we've seen no real problem. Forget Argentina because they're always in trouble on debt repayments. But if you begin to see places like Turkey or South Africa, South Africa doesn't have a lot of debt, but Turkey does. And certainly you've got Egypt with uh, a very high wheat price now from the war in Ukraine because they were getting most of their bread is, is a result of wheat that they're importing from Ukraine and Russia. That's stopped. They're, they're having huge inflations there. So I, I think you're right to highlight it, but it hasn't gotten much attention except for the, the bureaucrats at the IMF this past week. They raised it, but uh, in the public prints here in the States, you don't see much of it yet. Mm. Iris, what do you make of the IMF downgrade for Hong Kong's uh, economy? Half a percent they're predicting now uh, for the year. Yeah, as uh, as expected, because COVID's um, social distancing measures actually hurt Hong Kong's economy a lot. And there are a lot of people unemployed or underemployed. I think um, the recovery from relaxing social distancing measures for now, and Mrs. Carrie Lam said it will continue for at least in May, that actually is very short term. We are at the end of April, and May is just one month of relaxation. I I really worry that she is implying something like tightening um, social distancing measures again when COVID cases rises. That means Hong Kong is in a cycle of uh, two months of relaxation and four months uh, tightening in social distancing measures, which makes no good for the Hong Kong economy. What do you make of it, Sam? This, uh, this, this statement yesterday from uh, Carrie Lam at her uh, press briefing that's going to stick to the plan to relax social distancing measures, but no uh, relaxation of travel restrictions any, any time for now, and, and uh, maybe an implied threat that it could all be reimposed again. Well, the problem is we still don't have the long-term plan, and that's the problem for Hong Kong and problem with China. So as long as there's a clear visibility as we have it on the places, I mean, on namely competitive places like Singapore, the uh, uh, factor is going to be brain, uh, you know, brain draining out of Hong Kong, which is clearly going to be a massive impact for, for the local economy. So short term, you may have a rebound when they open up and, you know, have a bit of domestic consumptions, but long term, it's going to be an issue. And it's going to be the same for China if things continue to go on. It's it's the same like the Ukrainian war. At some point, you have constraints, and the uh, the economic players will factor in those those uh, constraints and decide or not whether they want to uh, to take on those constraints or not. And I think more and more people out in Hong Kong they just say, "Well, now we don't have a plan. Enough is enough." Mm. Oh, we, we had representatives of the fund management industry saying on Monday that these continuing travel restrictions are chipping away at Hong Kong's competitiveness as an international financial hub. Uh, do you think they're correct on that? Um, I think that is partially, partially correct because um, for now, some of the talents are moving to Singapore, but only few of them in terms of the total pool of Hong Kong. But that is 
that's maybe just the start. We we should we we should really just like Sam said, has a long term plan, and be clear on the roadmap at least for for the roadmap so that everyone can actually estimate what the prospect is and decide on their way forward. Let me ask you about the mainland then. We're seeing now, well, we're into the fourth week of lockdowns in Shanghai. Now we have uh, cases uh, spreading in Beijing and some of the districts there locked down. Fears that maybe the whole of Beijing might get locked down. What's What's the economic toll of, of this? Now we've got two major cities, well, one completely in lockdown, another potentially going into lockdown. What's the toll? The, the, the toll is that for the second quarter of GDP, it is very likely to be in contraction on a queue-on-queue basis or on a year-on-year basis. But um, the government last uh, yesterday said that uh, it will increase construction projects like airports. So they are going to boost infrastructure projects to create jobs and also to create investments in the GDP calculation. Hopefully that can actually fill the gap, but it is a very big gap to fill. So they have to kick off those projects very soon because they only have two months left for the second quarter. Isn't what we need to see, particularly on the mainland, because there's a lot of talk at the moment, isn't there, from the PBOC, from the State Council about what they're going to do. Not a lot of action seen so far, although the uh, the Politburo is supposed to be meeting on Friday to discuss some economic measures. But don't we need to see things, some things done to boost consumption? I don't think that they can boost consumption for now. If you have lockdowns, how can you boost consumption? I think it is very difficult. You you can only boost consumption after the lockdown. Mm. Barry, what's the international uh, consequences of these lockdowns in, in China? Are you feeling the effects over there? Yes, we are, and I think we're going to see a lot more. I, I think that uh, what is happening in Shanghai in particular, I mean, the ports around Shanghai and Shanghai itself count for at least 30% of Chinese exports. And those goods are not getting to the States, they're not getting to Europe, they're not getting anywhere. And that is a real problem which won't be seen for a while. And you can see pictures, of, actually not pictures, just read accounts of all the ships that are waiting to get into Shanghai. And uh, it's almost reminiscent of what was happening uh, when you had 100 ships waiting to get into Long Beach and Los Angeles. So I think, uh, look, if, if goods are becoming short supply in Europe and the States, that adds to inflation. And it also creates shortages and it slows economic growth. So, you know, I, I think the impact is severe and will become more so. So, Sam, what, what sort of policy responses should we um, expect or hope to see uh, from the Chinese authorities to try and address this? Well, I think the the problem is clearly a clear line map for getting out of this policy because at some point people need certainty and the problem with the current policy is never know what's going to happen. So I think for two years people in China were very happy because COVID was, you know, wasn't there but that suddenly realized, well, we cannot contain it. And what shows as well is in Shanghai, you can confine people, but this, this thing still transmits. So how efficient is this policy? So I think what is crucial is they need to move forward 
have some clear plans and start rebuilding trust because I think one of the biggest issues also, which would happen is the loss of trust of the people who are experiencing this within the system. And that is quite critical for an economy, especially if when you want to stimulate consumption that you mm. build on trust. So they, I think they have a lot of work on this. Iris, what would you like to see? What policy responses would you like to, to see up on the mainland? I think I would like to see... Um I, I don't think that they will move away from zero COVID or dynamic clearing. So I would like to see that they are uh, uh, going into the Shenzhen models, which kick off the mass testing and lockdown very, very soon. That is only 10 confirmed cases. And then the lockdown can stop or finish within seven days. Guangzhou actually follows Sunjun's model and also finished the lockdown within several days. Um, Shanghai actually um, kicked off very late. They hesitated that a lockdown will hurt the economic growth. But the later you start this, the longer that you suffer. So now Beijing actually kicked off sooner than Shanghai, but still quite late compared to Shenzhen and Guangzhou. So I expect um, other cities to kick off soon if they really need to stick to the zero COVID policy. Okay. Barry, tell me about Twitter. Why, why does Elon Musk want to buy Twitter? <laughs> well, I don't have an answer. Uh, I've got some uh, ideas. Uh, look, he is a friend of Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey uh, was the creator of Twitter uh, many years back, and then Dorsey has pulled away from the company. Uh, and uh, I think that Dorsey's endorsement of what Musk is doing is quite significant. But what he wants is, I think, uh, since he's a big Twitter user, uh, almost like Donald Trump was, and Donald Trump was, of course, banned. So I think he does have a real belief in free speech. But uh, the people here in the middle and on the left are saying, hold it, but who's going to regulate the free speech? The problem with Twitter was all those algorithms and all that moderation was never publicly disclosed. So we didn't know what was happening. Uh, and by the way, let's just add that Jeff Bezos has entered into this fray because, you know, Musk makes fun of him. Uh, but uh, Bezos is saying, my goodness, uh, Twitter is going to become a tool of the Chinese government because Elon Musk is that tool because he's got 100 percent ownership of, of his most productive auto plant in, in Shanghai. So it's a complicated matter. But uh, I think that uh, it's going to go ahead. And as to your question, Peter, why does he want it? I don't know. If he tries to run it, I think he's making a big mistake because how thin can a person be stretched? He's already running three companies. Mm. Sam and uh, Iris, any thoughts at all on Twitter? No, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sam? Not really. I mean, I have a, I'm, I'm not a user of Twitter anyway, so I wouldn't, oh, okay, so. wouldn't be really able to comment. But you never know a bit what's that behind Elon Musk. I mean, he's... He's been doing quite a lot of fantastic. So let's see. I mean, okay, great. Well, thank you both for your, all three of you for your thoughts there. You heard Sam Favre, Chief Executive at Mandarin Capital, Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking, and our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. In Australia, the SX200 is slipping further, down 1.1%. 
Uh, stocks in Japan also sliding as well, down 2.2%. The Cosby in South Korea is off 1.7%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 360 points lower later on this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talks. Stay tuned for the news in just a moment, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton this morning. The weather forecast, mainly fine. Uh, maximum temperature around 32 degrees can be fine and hot in the next couple of days as well. Uh, temperature right now is 27 degrees, 79% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Andrew Shorovsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The United Nations says Russia's President Vladimir Putin has agreed in principle to the UN and the Red Cross being involved in the evacuation of civilians from the Azovstal steel plant in the besieged city of Mariupol. This follows talks between the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and the Russian President in Moscow. Earlier, Mr. Guterres told President Putin that Russia's assault on Ukraine contradicted the constitution of the UN Charter. But Russian MP Yevgeny Popov told the BBC the UN did not have the authority to dictate Russia's policy decisions. I'm just seeing that Putin and Guterres are discussing humanitarian issues. I don't think they have discussed some political issues. We are a sovereign country and we are one of the fifth member of Security Council and we are going to do what we should do. The president of Moldova has told its citizens to remain calm after a series of explosions in the breakaway Transnistria region of the country, which is controlled by pro-Russian separatists. President Maya Sandu said the explosions on radio masts and the state security building were aimed at creating tensions. The pro-Russian head of the breakaway region claims Ukraine carried out the attacks, but Kyiv accused Moscow of wanting to destabilize the region as a precursor to sending in Russian troops. Kurt Volker is a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. The war could expand to Moldova because Russia chooses to expand the war to Moldova. Whether they do so or not, we don't yet know, but it's always been on the map. It's always been something that I think has been in Putin's mind. You take Ukraine and you take Moldova and you are well on your way to reconstituting a Russian empire. The World Bank says it expects the war in Ukraine to cause what it to cause what it calls the largest commodity shock since the 1970s. In a new report, it says the conflict will keep prices of goods from natural gas to wheat and cotton at historically high levels until the end of 2024. The BBC's Jonathan Josephs has more detail. Big price rises are already being seen across the world at supermarket checkouts in energy bills and car showrooms. After two months of fighting in Ukraine, the World Bank is now putting numbers on how big the increases are likely to be. The country was a major crop exporter, but with those supplies now cut off, wheat and chicken will both soar more than 40%, oils almost 30%, and barley and soybeans each more than 20%. Global energy prices will increase more than 50% as Europe tries to wean itself off of Russian supplies. Three Chinese nationals have been killed in Pakistan after a bomb ripped through their passenger van in the southern port city of Karachi. The Baloch Liberation Army separatist group claimed responsibility for the blast, saying the attack had been carried out by a woman suicide bomber. The news from RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, the Chief Executive says that the government will stick to its plans to relax its social distancing measures further in the latter half of next month unless there's a surge in COVID cases. But there'll be no more easing of travel restrictions for now beyond what's already been announced for this Sunday. At the same time, Hong Kong reported 347 new 